I'm Joss Stone. Thanks for joining me for a cup of happy. I spent the last few years singing my songs in every country in the world and been lucky enough to meet incredible people from all walks of life. What really struck me is that no matter where we are, we're all on the same mission. We're all just trying to find our version of happy. So with this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to a whole host of people to dig deeper into the what, why, and how of this emotion we call happiness. I hope that with these conversations, you discover something to help you on your own quest for happiness, possibly change your mind on a few things, and along the way, share a good old laugh with me and my guests. Today's guest is the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. We get straight into what it's about in our chat, so I'll let him do the explaining. But what I will tell you is that his TED Talk, Lessons from the Longest Study of Happiness, was the fastest spreading talk in the history of TEDx events. He's also a Zen priest and runs sessions that you can get involved in via Zoom if you want to. Did you just think, what's a Zen priest? Don't worry, me too. Robert will explain all about it later. I think this episode has a perfect balance with one foot in the spiritual realm and a scientific grounding which is really the combination we need to get closer to happiness. I'm very pleased to introduce you guys to Robert Waldinger. All right, today we are here with Robert Waldinger. He is a very interesting man. Hello, Robert. How are you? Hello. I'm good. Good to be here. Do you know what? I am so excited to talk to you. You have done the study that, or are part of now, the study that I have been hoping and praying for, for ages. I seriously, every time I'm talking about the brain, happiness, how it works, you know, um, when we go deep into these conversations, you often think, I wish there was a study that had spanned over 70, 80 years, talking to lots of different people about their state of mind. And, you know, of course there isn't one. And Robert, I listened to you talk on a TED Talk and I learned that actually there is and you're very much a part of it. Can you summarize it for us? Because it's such a huge conversation. Yes. Well, that's that's why we did it, Josh, for you, because we knew that you wanted it. So. Oh, well, thank you so much. (laughs) I'm so glad. (laughs) Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. So I'm the fourth director. It was started 84 years ago and it was actually started as two separate studies by two different groups of researchers who didn't even know about each other. The the first one was a group of Harvard University undergraduate students, 19 years old sophomores who were chosen by their deans as fine upstanding young specimens. And the study was designed to ask the question, how do people move from their teenage years into young adulthood in a healthy, happy way. And so the study set out to follow the lives of 268 Harvard College undergraduates. And so, of course, if you want to study normal young adult development, you study all white men from Harvard, right? I mean, that's a perfect (laughs) sample. I I found that quite intriguing as well, that it was just guys. You know, it's so politically incorrect. But back then, that was normal, right? Back then, everyone was like, don't worry. Yeah, no, just talk to the men. Yeah. Exactly. 
it was normal just just talk to the men and just talk to Harvard guys because they're like everybody else, right? Yeah, they're the only ones that exist. Yeah, yeah. So then the other study that w- was completely separate in the beginning was started at Harvard Law School. And it was started by a man named Sheldon Gluck, a law professor, and his wife, Eleanor Gluck, who was a social worker. What they were interested in was the problem of juvenile delinquency and why children from really difficult backgrounds got into trouble with the law. And what they were interested in was studying a group of kids who were from equally difficult, disadvantaged backgrounds, but didn't get in trouble with the law. How did some kids manage to stay on good developmental paths, even though they had so many things predicting that they would get into trouble and have really difficult lives? So that was their question. And then eventually, my predecessor, the third director of the study, said it would be great to combine these two groups to study both the Harvard undergraduates, now grown up, and the inner city Boston boys who who are now grown up, particularly study the ones who didn't become delinquent. And so that's what we've got. We've got two groups, again, all white males, but the inner city men were from many immigrant families, over half of the families were immigrants. The other thing is that the city of Boston in 1938 was 97% white. So if you wanted to start a study in 1938, you pretty much started a study with white people. Now we know that diversity looks so different now, but back then diversity was diversity of social class, diversity of immigration status, you know, of ethnic background. So they were trying to be diverse, just not doing a great job, but kind of doing their best. Yeah. And if you and if you think, I'll just say one more thing, which is if you think about it, what diversity looks like now in the US or elsewhere in the world, it's going to look different 50 years from now because we're always changing. Yeah, that's so true. Have they adjusted that since the beginning? Because now I I read there was 724 men included in the study now. Obviously, it's changed over the years. And do you constantly add men to this study? No, thank you for asking that. So 268 Harvard men and 456 inner city Boston men make 724. And that's all from 84 years ago? All from 1938. So we never brought in new families. We only started with those original people, but then we brought in their children. So we started We started first studying their spouses, but then also their children. So now we've studied 1,300 of their children, baby boomers. Oh. You know, more than half of them are women. Well, yay. So now our study is filled with women. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> but we don't add new families. And the reason we don't is if we were to now bring in a group of new families, we wouldn't have all that information from 84 years. The wonderful thing about our study is we can look across generations. We can say, well, if your parents' marriage was unhappy, how likely is it that your marriage is going to be unhappy? Those kinds of questions. Mm, how likely is it, Robert? 
Well, there's some likelihood, but it's not set in stone. There are many people oh. who come from unhappy homes who have very happy marriages and and close relationships. Oh, that's nice news. You kind of worry that history repeats itself, but it doesn't have to. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what we find. History does not have to repeat itself. I heard you just kind of gloss over in your talk that one of the people that was being studied became one of the presidents of the United States. Yep. Which one? John F. Kennedy. <gasps> really? Yeah. Gosh. So you've got a lot of data on that man then, I'd say. Well, now we don't. <laughs> Let's hear all about it. Come on. <laughs> when, when JFK ran for senator from Massachusetts, before he ran for president, right? Mm -hmm. His advisors said to him, probably not a good idea to have all these questionnaires with very personal information sitting in an office somewhere at Harvard University. Probably not the best idea. So they, they asked the study to remove his records and give them back to the Kennedy family, which we did. Mm -hmm. And then the Kennedy family eventually put them in the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston. So they were discovered by a journalist many years later who recognized the papers from the study and said, oh, John F. Kennedy was part of the study. Otherwise, we would never reveal that he was part of the study. We keep the identity of our study participants completely confidential unless the identity is revealed by them or in some other way. Okay. So the biggest thing that I got from everything that you were saying in that talk was, of course, which president? Oh, my God. Um, but that was the gossipy side of my brain going, oh, what's going on here? But the biggest thing really was that relationships, good relationships can help you to live a long, happy life. Can you be more specific about your findings there? Because, of course, it's relationships can come in all different shapes and sizes. Yes. You know, so I've got lots of questions with that, you know, do those relationships, do you have to be in the presence of that person? Can they be oceans away and you talk to them on the phone every day? Do that, does it have to be a romantic relationship or a friend relationship? Okay. So what we found first was that the people who had more connections with other people and warmer connections with other people stayed healthy longer as they got older and they lived longer lives. And at first we didn't believe it. Like it kind of stands to reason that if you have warmer, happier relationships, you're gonna be a happier person. That wasn't a surprise. It makes sense. It's logic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But how could it actually make you live longer? How could that how could that be? And then what we found was that other studies were finding the same thing. And that's when we began to say, okay, there's something very real here. There's some real effect. Somehow our relational lives condition our bodies and shape our physical health. And that's what we thought was remarkable enough that I gave a TED talk about it in 2015, saying this is a really important finding for the world to know about, that it matters. So what defines a warm relationship? Good question. Your question, does it, do you have to have a partner? Do you have to be married or in a, you know, in a committed romantic relationship? No, you do not. What we're talking about, first of all, are close relationships, at least one, where you feel like somebody 
would be there if you really needed them. So we asked our participants a question at one point. We said, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? Oh. List all the people you could call. Some people could list like several people and some people couldn't list anyone. Oh my goodness. And what we realized was that that sense of, you know, uh, if I if something really awful happened or I got really scared, here's who I could call. That knowing that makes a huge difference for you in your life. That feeling of I have someone who will catch me if I'm falling, right? Makes you feel safe. Yeah, and mm. so it's that. It doesn't. You don't have to have a marriage license. You don't have to have, you know, a million Facebook friends or 10,000 Instagram followers. No, you don't have to have that. It's to have somebody who, as we say in the US, who has your back yeah. if you're in trouble. And so that's the warm relationship. Mm, yeah. yeah, when you said that there were some that had none, I feel like I had a physical reaction, made me want to cry. Yes, yes. That's and, awful. You know, there've been studies. There's a sociology study by a professor named Robert Putnam about this. He asked people in the United States at two points in time in the 1980s and then in the first decade of the 2000s, asked them, who do you have in your life? Do you have someone in your life who you could talk to about personal matters? Mm. One in four people in the United States in the 2000s said they had no one on the planet who they could talk to about personal matters. One in four? One in four. Oh my gosh. That's huge. Why do you think that's happening, Robert? Have you got a theory? Well, it seems that we are becoming more disconnected for a variety of reasons, but one reason seems to be technology. That as much as technology can connect us, I mean, look, here you and I are having a fun, interesting conversation. We've never met each other. We're miles apart on the planet. So that's a good thing, right? So technology is not bad, but think about the ways in which technology can really isolate us. They found that when television was introduced into homes in the United States, like happened really fast in the 1950s. So from the beginning to the end of the 1950s, it went from zero TVs in people's homes to almost every home having a television. And during that time, the rate at which people joined clubs, the rate at which people went to church, the rate at which people volunteered in their communities went way down. Of course, yeah. And then that happened again in the early 2000s. We think with the introduction of these wonderful things we call smartphones and tablets and laptops where we're spending all of our days on screens, Yep. Now, that doesn't mean that those screens are the, the devil, <laughs> the bad guys. It just means that how we use our technology matters and that the path of least resistance may be drawing us away from each other, spending just time on screens, like scro doom scrolling on Instagram, for example. It takes practice, I think, to be comfortable if you're not an extrovert, I suppose, it takes practice to be comfortable in a new scenario if you're going to join a club or yeah. go to a new church. And I often notice that, you know, a group of friends will be sat together outside and, you know, maybe the sun is shining or whatever. And they are together, 
But they're all on their phones. They're all on their phones. They're not looking at each other. No. They're not talking to each other. And it's almost like a nervousness. You know, they're kind of like, I don't really know what to say right now. So I'm just going to bring my phone out. And I don't know. It's a conversational piece. I don't know. It just seems a bit of a worry. How do you avoid that? <laughs> so I teach young psychiatrists and I teach them how to do psychotherapy. I teach them to talk and to listen, right? So I teach them in a seminar room. During COVID, I don't, but it'll come back. And, and I teach them in the seminar room and I say, now I want all of you to put away your screens. Yeah. And they are like deer in the headlights. You see these, this moment of panic because I think we have become so locked into having those screens there, as you say, to reach for in moments when we don't know what to do, in moments of discomfort. Yeah. What if we didn't do that? It might be quite nice to not do that. I mean, I suggested to my partner, I was like, hey, should we do like no phones every Saturday or something? Yeah. You know, just to kind of not have them around and I don't know, go and have a walk in the woods, like all day, not just for an hour or two. Right. And he was like, uh, okay. <laughs> right. He agreed, but he didn't, he literally didn't seem happy. <laughs> you know, you can see the body kind of goes, oh, oh no, but yeah. what if someone needs me? Or yes. what if I need to text someone? Or, you know, and even when I go walking with him, just with the dogs and with Violet, I'm thinking I must take my phone just in case he falls over and, you know, I can't pick him up or something. I need to call someone for help, you know? Right, so right. there is that safety thing that you have with, with that communication tool. So it's almost like it might be better to have one of those necklaces that old people have where they can press it if they fall down in the bath. It's not a phone, but it's another device. It's not a phone. You can't reach the internet in that way. No. Now, now, you know, I practice Zen meditation. And so I go on silent Zen retreats, sometimes for three days, sometimes for a week, sometimes longer. And wow. at those retreats, we put away all electronics. You don't look at your phone or anything electronic for, say, a whole week. It's amazing. And people come back feeling so refreshed. Mm -hmm. I read that you're a Zen priest. Yes. So do you run those silent retreats? Is that something that you put together? Yeah, I'm a Zen teacher. So I do. I, I run those retreats. I, I teach meditation. If somebody wanted to join you, how would they get in contact? They could join me at newtonzen.org, N-E-W-T-O-N, Zen, Z-E-N, all one word, dot org. And they could come to our meditation group online because we're on Zoom. So you could join us on Monday nights. Really? Or, yeah, oh, anybody wow. who wants to. The other thing is I am a teacher on Insight Timer. I don't know if you know that app. It's a little app on your phone that is a, as a timer for your meditation if you want it. But it also has Dharma talks. It had talks and teaching and, and mm -hmm. guided meditations. So I'm also on there. So now we're using our devices to help us relax. Yeah. Isn't it mental? It's like we're living through it. It's like absolutely mad. But like you say, there's positives to connecting through those things and there's negatives to it as well. Exactly. So you, you have to balance it. Um, when you do these silent retreats, I always wonder, and I'm almost a little bit afraid of them because I suppose sound is my thing and um, I'm a chatty girl. So I think that... <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like I would feel really uncomfortable if I was silent for days and days on end. 
It sounds really scary, actually, strangely to me. Yes, it is scary. It's not necessarily peaceful. Sometimes it's peaceful because sometimes we feel peaceful. But mm. what happens is you sit with, you watch your mind. And one of the things we know, you know, if you watch your mind, like let's say you're just driving in your car somewhere mm. or you're sitting on a train looking out the window, your thoughts kind of play through. You know, there's a kind of internal monologue going on right? Yeah. And sometimes bad stuff comes up. And so when you're sitting there on a cushion meditating during a retreat, a lot comes up. And what you learn is that this is the mind we live with all day long, every day. But what you learn about is how the mind works. And you learn more about how to train the mind. And it's really, I mean, I have found it a life-altering practice. It is so helpful, but it's not easy. And it's not relaxing by and large. It's different from relaxing. Right. It sounds very beneficial. In this study, was was there a large group or even a small group of people that did things like meditation and uh, silent retreats that you could kind of get information from? Well, in our study, particularly in that generation, that was like the World War II generation. So in that generation... Buddhism was hardly known in the West. Not a lot of yoga. So, no. right, not a lot of yoga, not a lot of meditation. So very few people did that. But all spiritual traditions have meditative parts to them. So the Catholic religion has lots of meditative branches of it and meditative practices. Islam, Judaism. So there are people, there have been people for thousands of years doing meditative practices. They're just, they were just harder to find in the West, in Boston in the 1930s. Right. So, but we did have some people who were deeply religious, who had strong spiritual practices. They just didn't look like the practices that we know more about now. Did they come out on top as far as health and happiness? the people that were more religious and spiritual? No, they didn't. Ah. They didn't. We actually studied that. Being a churchgoer, or saying you were religious did not confer any benefit of happiness or longevity. It didn't make you less happy either. What we did find though, was that many people turned to religion or spiritual practice in time of trouble to ease their troubles and that that was helpful. So that religion and spiritual practice can be a really useful tool for many people. Not for everybody, but it is there for some people. It's almost like having that friend if you don't have one, you know, for those yeah. one in four people that feel like they have no one to turn to. They have that. Absolutely. Many people say, I feel so helped by and so not alone mm. with this spiritual practice of mine. You know, and many people in our Zen meditation group will say, we often have a little kind of sign off goodbye at the end, especially on Zoom. And people will say, I feel so glad to be part of this group. And there's this feeling of connectedness, even though mostly we're sitting in silence. So you log on and you just help them be quiet. Do you ever get a naughty one? 
Oh, yes, we get naughty ones. <laughs> you do? Yeah. <laughs> they just join in and start chatting. Yeah, and then we ask them, you know, to please. Excuse you know, me, can you be quiet? Yeah, 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 we just gently, you know, we're, we're a kind, gentle group. We don't, we don't slap anyone on the wrist. We just oh, say, gosh. please, you know, or perhaps this isn't the right group for you, you know. Right. <laughs> You're so polite. Perhaps you'd like to go to a rock concert and have a place yeah. to really scream. To really let go. Well, we need yeah. a bit of that. Absolutely. Was that part of the study? If people were interested in art and music, was that covered? Well, it was. We asked them about their occupation. And if some people were in art and music, and we asked them about their hobbies, their avocations. And many people had hobbies that involved the arts. Did it make them happier? We didn't do that study. You ask really good questions, Joss. You know, <laughs> we never did that analysis, that data analysis. We didn't know. say, well, did the people who had artistic hobbies, mm. are they, were they happier? We don't know. I can't tell you the answer to that question. So if you wanted to kind of delve back into the data that was collected 50 years ago to kind of look for something, is it in a kind of sorted scenario where you could do that? You could say, oh, I've got a question. We can. Let's go back 40 years and, and have a snapshot of what was going on. You can. Yes. And people come collaborate with us all the time mm. to do just what you're saying. So researchers will, you know, they'll email me and say, I'm a researcher. Here's the question I have. And, and we will invite many of them to come. They have to come and work with us because it's very difficult to to learn how to use our data without some long preparation because it's really complicated and big and messy. But people, some people do, and they can ask questions that we wouldn't think to ask, wonderful questions, and publish scientific papers based on their inquiries. So we do that, and we are actually committed eventually to making as much of our data as we can available on the internet to the public, what we have to do is find a way to make the data available that won't identify individual people. Because one of the things we, we, we promise and pledge to keep everybody's information private. Because otherwise, why would you give your personal information to a study? You wouldn't join in. We wouldn't join yeah, in and yeah. you wouldn't stay in. And so we have to honor that pledge. But Given that pledge, we are able to take data that no one could identify individuals in and, and make that data public. So will it continue and will it expand ever? Well, it's continuing right now. We're about to reach out again to our second generation, to the children of all the original men. And we're asking, so right now our questions are about how have you done through the pandemic? And our questions are about screens. How are you using screens? How, what, in what ways are you using the internet uh, to try to understand the effect of these things on our well-being and on our health? So we are continuing the study in that way. It's not clear yet when and whether we'll reach out to the grandchildren, to the great-grandchildren, because that's a much more complicated thing to do. It involves then thousands of people uh, living all over the planet. And so we'll see about that. But right now, we're still very much involved in studying. Mm -hmm. I suppose the question is, how 
much do do your grandparents affect you? Your parents certainly do. And of course, it's a trickle, it's a domino effect, isn't it, really? Yeah. But it's like, you know, if I make an action now, or if I live a five years worth of being upset now and then a year of happiness will that affect my daughter's daughter later the question never ends does it it's like it's infinite it can go on and on and on and on yeah yeah and that's what we love about these data what we are calling multi-generational data right on more than one generation because you can ask just those kinds of questions that you are naming it's brilliant I think it'd be interesting to see the study span across countries, continents, because the weather will affect people's happiness, certainly. The weather and governments and social systems. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and think about how culture affects ideas about loneliness, about social connection, what's normal and what's expected in terms of your relationships is so different in different cultures. Mm. Do you guys ever advise the government at all with your studies? Well, we are funded by the government. So most of our funding has come from the National Institutes of Health. We advise them, we work with them a lot, but we're just one study, albeit a unique study, but we're just one. I was asking because there was a chap I spoke to on the last series that he was the CEO of the Institute of Happiness in Denmark. And they did studies like this and um, they had a big team and they would advise the government on how to to help their people, the people of Denmark, be happy. And it's it's my opinion that I think that's the job of whoever's running the country. It's to keep people happy and healthy as much as possible, or the, the most amount of people in that state. You can't keep everyone happy, but, you know, you can try. Yes. I mean, and, and you know who has asked me to consult with them has been the, the prime minister's office in the Emirates, the United Arab Emirates, and also, I've talked with members of the government of Bhutan. Oh, wow. As you know, Bhutan has been very invested in what they call gross national happiness yes. instead of gross national product. Exactly. And so I've been to Bhutan and talked with some of the people there working on this. Oh, that's right up your street. I bet you loved it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh I loved it. And Bhutan is just a wonderful place. It's um, gorgeous. Yeah, oh, yeah. my goodness. It's just such a special place. It's really calm and kind. People are very kind there. People are very kind. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because of their, their beliefs or they're so covered in nature. You know, it's very natural there. Well, it is. It's because of their beliefs about their oneness with nature and their oneness with each other. So instead of this feeling of separateness, you know, we are separate and, and don't tread on my rights. And, you know, they have a very different view that, that the well-being of all is what's important. So I will tell you a story about how they handled the pandemic. The, the country of Bhutan vaccinated everyone. And they vaccinated everyone at what just at one point in time they they gave their first shot. Now it's a small country, so they can do it's that. Tiny, yeah. I bet they did it in a weekend. Yeah, but the <laughs> king and queen of Bhutan, who are much loved, just adored in that country, the king and queen said, "We will be the last people in Bhutan to get a vaccination." So as you can imagine. Everybody in Bhutan lined up because they did not want to be the people who got in the way of the king and queen being vaccinated. Oh my gosh. So it was a way to make sure 
that everybody did it. Rather than a king ah. saying, I'll be the first, the king said, I'll be the last. There's something in Buddhism called a bodhisattva. And a bodhisattva is a being who commits herself or himself to the well-being of everybody. And the bodhisattva says, when I get to be enlightened, I am not going to leave this world. The, the belief, the ancient belief is you don't have to come back into this world and this life of suffering. You get to leave. And the bodhisattva says, I'm not going to leave until everybody's enlightened, until oh. I help bring everybody to a state of well-being. That's consistent with what the king and queen did in Bhutan. They said, we want everybody to be safe. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think about this, given the polarized cultures that many of us are living in, this is such a wonderful view of what's important in life. Yeah. I think looking after other people helps. You know, I was doing this, um, I know it sounds silly, but I was running, <laughs> watching this lady run a marathon. So she's like a trainer. On, it's on a treadmill and you know, marathon's hard. Obviously, I'm not running the whole thing. I just do like five miles. She's there saying, when you get tired, and this woman's run 94 marathons. She's got like the mind of a Jedi. And she's like, it's fine. It's fine. If you feel tired, all you have to do is start cheering on other people. Start thinking about other people and you will get that strength and you'll stop hurting somehow. She's like, I'm not joking. It works. And it really does. Truly, truly does. That's yeah. perfect. That's perfect. That is that illustrates exactly this principle. There's a there's a quote from the Dalai Lama that I love. He said, the wise, selfish person takes care of other people. Yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> because yeah. Yeah, what goes around comes, comes around, mm -hmm. that it comes back to you. Even if you think you have to look out for yourself, what you give away comes back to you. That's so true. Like you say with the study, yes, it seemed obvious that relationships would make you happier. It does seem obvious. It, it seems like um, life is very simple and we could just let it be. If we could just get out of our own way and let it be, we'd be okay. You know, of course, there's many questions that come with that, but... Really, truly, it's about your experience and how you affect other people. Otherwise, you just feel bad if you affect people badly. Yes, yes. And, you know, what happens, I think, is that the reason why the TED Talk got so many millions of views wasn't because it was some brand new idea. It was because, oh, this is one of those ideas we keep forgetting. Yeah. that we keep losing sight of. And, and so what happens is that a lot of this wisdom, much of which is ancient, is wisdom that we keep losing sight of because the culture keeps pulling us away. The culture keeps saying, no, no, this shiny bauble over here is what you should really work for. This prize or this number of followers on Twitter or you know whatever the prize is or this, you know, buy this fancy car. Any, any of those prizes, this is what you should look for because this is going to make you happy. And we keep getting drawn away from these ancient truths. And so some of what happened was my scientific data helped to remind people of these ancient principles that are true. Yeah, I suppose they're 
we all are being, like you say, pulled in one direction. It's nice when someone comes along and um, starts talking sense and it speaks to your core, the core of you and you recognize it. It's like an old friend. Oh, I know you. That feels, that feels good. Exactly. Yeah. That's, and that's, that's what happens when, when you hear this, it's like, oh, it's like an old friend. It's like, oh yeah, I really have always known that. And yeah. like, oh yeah, here it is again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's simple. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about your foundation. I hear that you've put it together to kind of help people understand themselves and better the world. Please tell me more. Yes. So when my TED talk went viral, we realized there were people who really wanted to know more about what research tells us about how people actually thrive, how people can be happier in their lives. But mostly the stuff we're finding is hidden in academic journals, in very technical papers that nobody reads. That you couldn't understand if you tried. I certainly couldn't. I mean, you probably could, but, but not. Yeah, me. but just barely, because uh, it's like writing in very technical scientific language. Right. So we thought, could we take these findings and put them into a form that people could use to better their lives. And so we founded a foundation, the Lifespan Research Foundation, that uh, is dedicated to this mission of taking research findings, so taking science and bringing it into forms that people can use to better their lives. So we've started out by creating a program that we call Roadmaps for Life Transitions. It's a program that's really just a set of small group sessions, five meetings where people spend time with each other, with a facilitator, learning about what science tells us about where I am in the lifespan and how it determines how I view my life. Tells us about, ask people to clarify their values and what their purpose in life can be. Asks people to think about their relationships and how they'd like to improve them. Asks people to think about, how do I meet big life challenges like COVID? Or how do I meet big life challenges like having a first child, which is a big deal in your life, right? changes everything. And so we, we've created these sessions where people can learn about the research, but also share with each other, well, how do, how do people do this? And so the Roadmaps program is something that now people can sign up for if they want to, because now it's happening on Zoom. I'll give you our website if, if I can. It's www.lifespanresearch.org. So lifespan research, all one word, dot org. So if you want to go and be part of these sessions, you can just go onto that website, log on, and then find a time when it's happening. Is it, it's live, right? It's live, yeah. Okay. If you were to join, would there be loads of other people there? Or would you see everyone? You'd see everyone. There would be a, a group of, often it's like between 12 and 15 people who, the same group for all five sessions, and the same facilitator. So you get to know each other. And that's really helpful because you, you get to know people from all different walks of life and sometimes from all different parts of the world. It, and people have often really enjoyed it and wanted to kind of stay together in their little group after the sessions are done. Oh, that's so lovely. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I think I might do that. That sounds really like a very positive thing to do, bringing people together. 
as well, you know, because then you get to hear other people's stories. Yeah, that's such an important part of life. That's the mission. Wonderful. So, I mean, I'm sure you've got lots of little tidbits of advice. Um, (laughs) But just for our listeners today, I think you're, you know, you've learned a lot in your life and you're very wise and very calm and very lovely. If you could kind of give people some advice on how to action being happier when they walk away from this podcast, what could they do Okay. in the immediate sense? First of all, I don't have all the answers and we know that, right? So let's just get that clear. No human does. No human, no human does. But, but you've got I'll, a few. <laughs> I'll give you some ideas from, from where I sit, right? From Perfect, just yeah. having been a human being on the planet for some years. One is watch where you're giving your attention whether you're giving your full attention to the people you care about and the things you care about. Really watch that and notice when you start being distracted, when you start only giving partial attention to someone and kind of looking at your phone. And, you know, so you can make that decision in any moment. You can make that decision right now, right? Mm-hmm. And and you can remember, you can you can forget about making that decision and then five hours from now, realize, oh yeah, I can decide. How am I gonna use my attention? And so that's one. The second one is to take care of your relationships. So just like going to the gym, like we, our bodies need care. You don't go to the gym once and say, oh, I had a good workout, I'm done for the rest of my life, right? No, No. (laughs) it's a practice. You gotta keep that going, right? So. Remember that that turns out to be true for your relationships too. It turns out to be true for your romantic relationships, for the people you live with. It turns out to be true for your friendships, including those old friends who you think are always going to be there, for your relatives. So don't take them for granted. Stop and think, and you can do this every day, every week. Who have I not talked to in a while? Who do I need to call up and say, meet me to go take a walk? Just remember that taking care of those relationships is a kind of social fitness. It's like physical fitness. You got to keep doing it. And then I think the last thing would be to keep your eye on the question, am I doing the things that I really care about that really matter to me? And if I feel like I'm not, like I'm not really spending time on the things I care about, See if there are ways you can make adjustments. They can be small, they can be big, but just adjustments to spend a little more of your time and a little more of your energy on the things that most matter to you. So it's three things. It's attention, it's social fitness, and it's keeping your eye on the things you most care about. If you could do those three things, life will get better. What lovely advice. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been mm. wonderful chatting to you. Yeah, this has been great. You're a you're a wonderful conversation partner, so thank you. Oh, good. Well, if that's the case, you must pop round. We'll have a dinner and a longer chat. That would be I good. I would. I would. <laughs> that would be good. We can invite me over. <laughs> chat till till the end of the world, I think. I think Yeah, I yeah. I could chew your ear off. <laughs> yeah, this was a pleasure. I really awesome. enjoyed it.